Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, February 24th, 2012. This week, episode 237 comes to you from Studio C back in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Yeah, it seems like it's a spring day today. It's beautiful. It's nice, yeah. hey, Pittsburgh, lovely weather in the Berg this week. Assisting us at the controls is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Good Bender. Good morning. Good morning, Val. It up. And of course, joining us by phone will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question. We've got an interview with the restoration attorney. He's back. It's been two and a half years, hard to believe, since Ed Cross was here. Over two, anyway. Of course, we'll have our halftime. We'll go to the roundup with Dr. Weil at the end of the show. But before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, to listen live, just follow the link on your show invitation that says go to the show or to the button at the top of the iaqradio.com website that says go to the show. You can also stream past shows directly from our website homepage or, of course, download shows from the iaqradio.com site. Follow that link again. Go to the show. Right-click on the download button by your favorite show and save it to your MP3 player. You're also able to get them from iTunes. We also have those IICRC, now the Clean Trust, Continuing Education Credits, and ACAC Renewal Credits. And you can also self-certify through the American Board of Industrial Hygiene. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We'll get you out of quiz, and you can get yourself continuing ed credits. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at 
iaqtraining.com. We've got the new indoor environmentalist uh, lineup. We've got an awareness and intermediate level. Check it out. We'll be in Greenville at the end of March. Z-Man, let's go over for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text in your answer. Congratulations. To Andy Krasowski, Concast Metal Products, for being the first and only listener to identify Arthur D. Little as the research and development firm that, under a classified government contract, developed the HEPA filter in the 1940s. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, February 24, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out the new electronic membership category at www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the legal writ that compels a person or persons to appear in court and to bring with them books, documents, or other tangible property which may be in their possession. Back to you, Joe. Okay. This week we have Mr. Ed Cross, the restoration attorney. We're going to talk contract documents and current events in the cleaning and restoration industry. Cross & Associates is the nation's leading law firm advocating for the interests of the cleaning and restoration industry. Ed Cross has represented over 50 cleaning and restoration companies across the country and has obtained trial court order victories on behalf of cleaning and restoration companies, successfully resolving over 1,000 disputes and covering many million, recovering many millions of dollars. He was a key contributor to the IICRC's published standards for professional water damage restoration and for professional mold remediation. Known as the Restoration Lawyer, Ed has given over 75 invited presentations to the Restoration Industry Association, Connections, and other national groups. He has published over 35 articles on legal issues affecting the cleaning and restoration industries, and he is the director of the Restoration Industry Defense Alliance and the author of the Restoration Lawyer Newsletter, Standardized Contract Forms for the Cleaning and Restoration Industries, a topic we're going to talk quite a bit about today, and the moderator of the Restoration Law Group on LinkedIn. We've got a little, this is, what do you think, Cliff? Yes. Music is perfect. Absolutely. It's perfect. The man himself. There it is. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> you should watch what you put on the internet, Ed. <laughs> uh, wait, is that? 
How long do we have? There we go. There we go, Ed. <laughs> Did you guys get the publishing rise broadcast? Uh, no, we... You we, can we, talk to we, my attorney. We, we, we would rather beg forgiveness than ask for or permission. permission. <laughs> there you go. Did well, you hack into my computers to get that? I don't understand. For those that don't understand, that was Ed Cross himself. That's right. A little drum solo there. Huh? Didn't realize you were a drummer, Ed. Nice job. And neither did I until you just played that. <laughs> Welcome back. And now everybody heard it, they realize I'm not. <laughs> Stay away from those drums. Hey, welcome back. It's great to have you back. And uh, what's what's new in the in the restoration attorney's world? I, I, I know we want to talk about contract documents today. And before we get started, I want to let listeners know we're definitely going to also do some current events. We'll do that in the second half of the show, though. Let's... Uh, Let's start with the contract document issue, Ed. How long have you been – you've got a set of contract documents now that I know you, you make available to the restoration industry. How long have you had those? Well, before I talk about that and we get into all this stuff, I want to say this time, no lawyer jokes, okay? <laughs> lawyers get a bad rap, okay? Sure, there's some bad lawyers out there like any profession, but you know what? Enough with the lawyer jokes. Okay. In fact, I know for certain that at least 10% of the jokes that are out there aren't even true. <laughs> <laughs> at least 10%. At least 10%, right. Oh, right. Well, anyway, yeah, we've had these out for uh, a couple of months now, and the response has been really good. Oh, it's only been and, a couple uh, They're available for uh, download instead of having to wait to uh, get something mailed or sent. It's all electronic. They're Microsoft Word format, and they can be downloaded from edcross.com. Well, let's, let's start with what, you know, what are some of the issues that are emerging in the restoration and remediation contracting world in general, and then we'll, we'll do a little bit more specific to contracts. Well, following the Great Recession, and lots of restoration litigation, we're seeing lawyers and customers get a lot more savvy about contract issues and a lot more aggressive. Whereas a few years ago, people were kind of looking the other way, either they didn't understand it, weren't paying attention, or whatever. But similar to the way the insurance industry got organized a dozen years ago to fight mold cases, now... Uh, customers and their attorneys are getting more organized to go after bad contracts. And unfortunately, despite the dissemination of lots of good material from IAQ Radio, IAQA, RIA, IICRC, Clean Trust, there's still many segments of the restoration industry out there that simply haven't caught up, and they're getting themselves in trouble, both in terms of collecting money and getting sued because they're not, um, they're not using good documents and they have contracts that aren't even really contracts. And we'll talk about uh, work authorizations and that stuff in a little bit. Um, one of the big issues going on right now, as you may have read about, is mortgage companies holding back insurance loss proceeds. And RIA has done an excellent job covering this issue and advocating for the restoration industry. Tim Shaw published a very bold letter to the banks on the inside cover of a recent 
issue of Cleaning and Restoration magazine. I don't know if you saw, but it was awesome. It was like to Wells Fargo, Bank of America. He listed a bunch of different banks there, and it, it looked like a letter, the way it was printed. It had like a coffee stain on it, and it said, you know, what are you doing with all of this money that's being held back? And as most of our listeners are aware, when these uh, insurance loss proceeds uh, are uh, sent out, a lot of times the insurance companies will name the mortgage company as a joint payee, and in some instances, the borrower is in arrears on the loan, and so the mortgage company will hold on to the money, and sometimes they do it even when they're not in arrears on the loan. And we have techniques for, uh, for dealing with all that stuff, but it takes uh, some real attention. In the most recent issue of Cleaning and Restoration magazine, Patty Harmon wrote a really nice piece on this as well, and it's unique to see an association directly confront an enormous industry on a controversial subject like this. I was very impressed with what RIA did on that, and I think the industry owes them a debt of gratitude. But the uh, the theme they had was actually kind of humorous. It was, where do you want the water, ma'am? They point out the fact that um, the restoration industry is there for these people in their time of need. And the restoration industry improves and protects the collateral that backs up these loans. Um, And they're really happy and friendly uh, to get our service. But then after the service is done, uh, where are they for us? They hold on to the money. And so um, they kind of pointed out, hey, if you'd like, we can go put the water back into the house. Where would you like your water, ma'am? kind of like uh, delivering a pizza or something. <laughs> you know, you, you bring up a great point, and I, I guess I never thought of it this way. I'd, now, you know, I think a lot of people look at litigation and they think that a majority or a bulk of the litigation is people who are suing because they feel they were damaged in some way, etc. And, and from what you're saying here, I, I'm getting the impression that that's actually a small piece of the overall litigation. The larger piece would be issues related to contract documents. Is that accurate to say? Well, it's, it's a little bit of both. The, uh, the vast majority of lawsuits that I see restoration companies and environmental consultants being involved with are collections cases, and we do a lot in terms of seeking enforcement of contracts. Sometimes when you sue to collect money that's due, uh, then people suddenly realize they were sick or the workmanship was shoddy or whatever, and sometimes they'll file a cross-complaint back uh, to raise those sorts of issues. But um, the, the majority of the work that I'm doing for my clients is as a plaintiff to collect money as opposed to a defendant. But we'll talk about mold litigation in our update segment in the, in the second half. Mold litigation is alive and well, absolutely. But uh, I think statistically, if you looked at the uh, restorers that are out there, much more of them are involved in uh, collections actions than uh, defending claims for injury or damage to property. I I think in terms of history, you know, I go back with RIA. uh, That's the third name that they were under, uh, you know, since, since, since I've been a member. And, you know, previously what would happen commonly it it at conventions and at different meetings was we would freely exchange information 
among each other. And the first contracts and the first work authorizations I ever got for my business, you know, I got at an RIA event. And then over the years, you know, I'd add a paragraph here and I'd put something in from there. And I think a lot of people are tweaking. And number one, I think they're getting their agreements and contract documents this way. And then I think they begin tweaking them themselves. And, you know, it seems to me that um, at some point they need to make an investment the same as they would in an instrument for measuring moisture content yeah. or for, you know, being able to see, uh, you know, inside of wall cavities, temperature changes, and, and, and so on and so forth with infrared, that it would seem before you do any of those things, you better be sure your paperwork is in order. You could probably do it for less than what it costs for one of those cameras or uh, some of those pieces of measuring Absolutely. equipment. Ed, any comment right. on that? <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely true. And, um, I'm uh, very impressed, Cliff, that you would admit in a public setting that you were actually practicing law without a license. <laughs> but that's something that uh, many people in this industry are actually doing, and that's why we decided to come up with a standardized set of contract forms, because there are a lot of people out there, mom and pops and startups, who can't afford to hire a lawyer. And so we came up with a concept on how to standardize this stuff. It was a very labor-intensive process uh, because I had to um, make the documents generic. I have different clients who have um, certain preferences for clauses they like to have in their contracts, and many of them uh, have different types of needs and preferences for what gets included in there. But when you sit down to write something uh, for a large group, uh, you have to open it up and write it in a way so that it addresses a lot of different scenarios and um, is likely to be uh, acceptable and useful for a large number of people. And in order to make that work, um, I created... Uh, a how-to-execute set of instructions uh, that go with these. And this goes into a lot of detail about when to use the form, how to use the form, what it means, um, what types of objections um, they are likely to encounter, how to respond and uh, overcome those objections, and perhaps equally as important, we have a set of scripts where there's literally dialogue written out in plain English for what can be used to present these forms. A lot of guys get themselves in big trouble because they just throw some forms down on a kitchen table and tell Mrs. Jones, the homeowner, sign here, sign here, sign here. She doesn't read it. She doesn't understand it. Something goes wrong on the job. She says she didn't read it. She didn't understand it and that the person who gave her the forms knew she didn't read it or understand it. There was no meeting of the minds. She didn't understand that she was going to be responsible for payment. In a lot of these scenarios, uh, the homeowner doesn't even end up selecting the restoration company. They just contact an insurance company, and uh, they tell their carrier they've had some damage in the home, and then all of a sudden a company shows up. They say, I didn't select you. I didn't find you. I didn't see you in the yellow pages. You just showed up. I assumed you were working for the insurance company. 
And uh, no, if you look in the fine print on you know page 99 of the you know the contract, you see something that says you're responsible for payment. And they always say it wasn't presented to me that way. And when they say that to a lawyer, the lawyer says, "Great fraud! There's been a misrepresentation here." And this big bad bully restoration company came out and misled this uh, poor homeowner who's under a very stressful situation uh, into believing they were going were not going to have to pay any money, and the restoration company was simply going to accept whatever money the insurance company was going to pay. Uh, and then they snuck in this language to try to trick them, and it was all a setup. And it's just very, very poor communication going on. So what we need is simple one-page documents and a nice uniform way of uh, presenting them in a way that a layperson can understand it. And the scripts are short and sweet, but they address all the principal legal terms, and they do it in seventh-grade English. And it's not just about making sure that it's enforceable, but it's also about flushing out any misunderstandings there might be between the parties as to what their expectations can be of each other. And, and they really need to take that out, put it on the table, and, and take a hard look at it instead of just charging off into the job uh, with a different set or a conflicting set of expectations. That's just a recipe for disaster. You know, I think the industry is familiar with the term best practices. And, you know, I'm just really? one, Yeah. Uh, well, I, I would think. And, <laughs> but, you know, moving. But, but, you know, going, going forward, you know, this might be what I would refer to perhaps as best document. And what I mean by that is that you've had the benefit of litigating for numerous restoration contractors. Uh, who were either being sued for you know some sort of error, you know professional negligence or, or whatever, or trying to collect money. So it would seem that you know this document is going to have the best. I mean, you're, you're going to learn from the experience of others, I suspect, and you'd probably find yourself pretty far ahead of just trying to start and have your attorney do this from scratch. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, yeah, these clauses have been time-tested, and they've been litigated in many, many hundreds of cases. And I've seen how judges react to them, and juries react to them, and customers react to them, and we have uh, tailored them and revised them and edited them, and you know, it's in a constant state of evolution. And, um, you know, there are always... Um, certain limited circumstances where things don't turn out exactly the way you expect. Uh, but what we have here um, is something that is proven and has been proven over and over. And um, I'm very proud of it. And I've got a bunch of text questions coming in. I want to let listeners know. We, I'm going to work them in here. Now, what I'd like to do, though, no is... Worries, <laughs> okay. Uh, we were talking, you gave us a little do's and don'ts about contracting in that one answer. Was there anything you wanted to add to make get some specific do's and don'ts about contracting, or do you think you feel like you covered the key points earlier? No, no, there's, there's quite a bit more to it. Um, first off, I think that everybody needs to follow the IICRC Clean Trust 
recommendations and standards for contracts, documentation, and administration. It is, uh, it's unfortunate how many people in the business are uh, unaware of the details that are in those documents, uh, and some are even unaware that they exist at all. What I think is very important is that restorers and environmental consultants develop a uniform paper flow system uh, instead of um, having a lot of people doing a bunch of different things and, you know, adding and subtracting like uh, Cliff was back when he was practicing law without a license. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, we really need to keep it simple. It's important to do some things to customize contracts for a particular job where there are complexities or peculiarities on that job that require attention. I do a lot of this with my clients. They call me at the front end where I get involved in just putting in a few lines to address something unusual about this particular project, and that helps to prevent a lot of lawsuits. And my clients who've done that are involved in a lot less litigation and have a lot lower legal expenses year to year than the ones who just wait until everything has completely fallen apart to then send a file over to a lawyer and uh, try to defend a lawsuit. So we want to keep it simple, all right? There are uh, contracts out there that are very complicated, and there are some that are too simple. And, you know, this is a complex industry. There's a lot of liability exposure, and there's a lot of different potential attacks that somebody can use on a restorer's invoice. But that doesn't mean that it needs to be buried in a lot of excess legalese. Managers need to train their staff members on what the legal documents actually mean. It's disappointing to see how many people are out there actually signing up jobs, and they have no idea what the contracts mean. And when they get confronted with questions, they're forced to make up answers on their own with little or no guidance from company counsel or from management. And, you know, there are a dozen or so frequently asked questions that come up in these contracts. These are addressed in the script I mentioned earlier. And a staff should be trained on what the company's official position is on those frequently asked questions so that when they come up, the answers that are given within the company are uniform. And as my friend and mentor Pete Consigli once said, uniformity and consistency is a hallmark of professionalism, and that's very, very important. So we get the staff all on the same page. This is how we're going to answer these questions. So five years later when it's in a lawsuit, we're not going to remember this specific job, but we're going to remember that back in 2012, whenever a question came up on this particular issue, we answered it the same way every single time. Um, I had a client just testifying yesterday uh, in a deposition, and, um, you know, he's able to uh, answer questions about a job that happened a long time ago. He doesn't remember all the details of every conversation, but he was still able to competently testify about conversations 
that happened back then because he had a uniform way of explaining it every time. So if a question on X came up, this is what my answer would have been. And I know that's what my answer would have been because I said that every single time it came up. So once we've done all of that, we need to designate a person on the staff to review all of the contracts that come in. And um, I know some big companies uh, where the president, there's a very hands-on president, he will actually sit down and review every single contract that comes in. doesn't necessarily have to be the president, but it should be one person or a small number of people that are reviewing all of these documents and are aware of what's in there so they can spot inconsistencies as they come up. Next, the companies should have an independent file audit system. They have an objective third party come in like a lawyer or maybe a public adjuster working with the lawyer so it's protected by the attorney-client privilege, randomly pull files out of the file cabinet and go through them as a risk management and training exercise to see what's missing, see what hasn't been documented, and see if the file is set up in a way that a third party with no knowledge of the background of the project would have the ability to take a look at the file and figure out the who, what, when, where, and why of that job, figure out what happened and, and why it happened. Uh, as for the don'ts, they should not use traditional work authorizations. The traditional work authorizations just don't work anymore. A working on a restoration job where the traditional work authorization is kind of like playing football wearing sandals. You could do it for a while, but it probably won't turn out well. And if you play with the big boys, you're going to get hurt. And by the way, all the insurance companies are big boys. You know, Ed, so, you, you hit it. You actually read our minds. I don't, there, there was a text question. I want to just give you one more second on that. Work authorization. I extra for mind reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, work authorization versus contract was a text question. You were hitting on it anyway. Maybe you could just help me a little bit. What is the difference between the two? A traditional work authorization gives the contractor permission to come on the site and perform work. Aside from... Um, creating a piece of evidence that would defend a possible lawsuit for trespass, it's mostly a useless document. Gotcha. Okay? Okay. A, a service contract um, is something that contains a work authorization, but it has a whole lot more. It's something that's kind of a blend between a work authorization and a construction contract. It gets into specifics of scope, price, estimated completion date. Um, uh, limits of liability, um, explanations about who's responsible for what, disclaimers about third-party professionals. If the owner uh, chooses to hire uh, a third-party environmental consultant, for example, that consultant makes a mistake. Contractor's not responsible for that. The owner's going to be responsible for um, whatever third parties, vendors, or subcontracts the owner uh, chooses to hire. Gotcha. So, you know, work authorizations are really old-fashioned, and um, when, uh, when a consumer signs one of those, most of them believe that a work authorization is a document that authorizes work. 
they don't perceive that as a payment contract. And then the restorers go to try to collect payment on it, referring to it as a contract, and the layperson says, I didn't sign a contract. Right. What is right. The co- I just authorized you to come in. You were working for the insurance company. And then the fight is on, and all this money gets spent on attorneys for no good reason. Gotcha. Okay, and you were going through the dunks. I didn't want to interrupt, but I wanted to make sure we covered that. Well, I think there's one thing I would like yeah. to clarify it. Uh, so if I understand this correctly, you have one document that is used for the entire project, from emergency services through construction work and demolition and how do you um how do you handle you know changes in scope or you know how do you go from something simple to something complex using the same document well you don't use the same document you modify the document as the project goes along by way of a change order. Okay. I have always advocated the liberal use of change orders, and unfortunately, a lot of restorers get themselves in trouble because they just don't use change orders when they need to use them. Part of the reason for that is they incorrectly perceive the offering of a change order as some sort of admission of an error or negligence or something like that. It's not that way at all. We need to look at change orders as a sign of professionalism and an indication that the contractor is monitoring the project, is being conscientious about the details, and wants to make sure that there's an agreement on all of the different principal terms of the transaction as it goes along and that everything gets executed and gets properly documented. Now, to go back to the first part of your question, it's not the best in all situations to use a a one- or two-page contract for a big, complex construction project, for example, or, or something that has a lot of complexity to it. And we recommend that the documents be customized, like I alluded to before, to address some of the peculiarities of the job. But what we have is a template, which is a starting point, and then there's some small modifications that can be made later. But if you start with a foundation that's really strong, you're in the right position. So instead of us having an emergency service contract and a mold remediation contract, and a repair contract, and five different things where there's an estimator or a superintendent out in the field who has 10 different contracts in his truck, but he's got to pull out and make a legal judgment call at the site under the stress of the situation to figure out which form to pull out. It's too hard, and as a practical matter, what happens is they gravitate to the shorter forms, and if there's one in that collection that's one page, a lot of times that's the one they grab because they don't want to deal with the longer ones. The longer ones have a tendency to delay the discussion and the execution process, and delay can be the death of a sale. These guys want to get the job sold and get started with the work as soon as they can. But what I think was really needed was a one-size-fits-all sort of form virtually one-size-fits-all, and our service agreement, which includes the work authorization, 
is something that can be used for everything from carpet cleaning to mold remediation, emergency service, water extraction, uh, repairs from soup to nuts. And as the project evolves, they just fill in with a change order. I think it's much better to modify an original agreement with a change order than to have a bunch of different contracts hanging out there because then it creates confusion about which of the two is controlling. And when you were out there on some given day, were you doing it in the capacity of the emergency responder under the first agreement or were you acting under the second agreement for repairs? It creates a lot of unnecessary confusion and my goal is to reduce the amount of paperwork to keep it short and simple. And so our service agreement consists of a one-page form, which is called service agreement. They present that separately. They get a signature at the bottom of it. Then they present a set of terms and conditions, which is really the second page of the contract. They read that, discuss that, the customer initials it. That's the contract. And they can use that. They can modify price, scope, terms, completion date, any of the legal terms, anything they want by way of a change order. Change order doesn't have to be one page. A change order could be more extensive, and, you know, they can attach an exactimate estimate, for example, to address the repairs. Again, well, that was a long answer. Well, but again, you hit something else. Now, it, <laughs> right at the end, Ed, beautiful. Is the contractor – this is a text question from a listener. Is the contractor required – to provide an estimate up front as part of a contract before work begins, and if so, why? It depends on where you're doing work and you need to check with um, the local statutes. I think, as a general rule, what I normally advocate for wherever possible is to try to set up the contracts as a fixed-price lump-sum contract. One of the other problems with the traditional work authorizations is they don't have any mention in there about price, and so it leaves the door wide open for customers and adjusters to complain about the price. What we have on these forms is a series of options where they can check boxes to um, indicate the pricing structure, to indicate uh, what type of work it is, and it's kind of adaptable and customizable as they go along, and um, it took a lot of uh, editing work to squeeze that down to fit onto a one-page service agreement, but that's what the end result was. You pulled it off. Ed, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. for. It's going to take about a minute and a half. Can you hang in there with us for a minute? Sure. Thank you. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization 
dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half with the restoration attorney, Ed Cross. Hello, Ed. Do we have you back on the line? I'm back, Joe. Great, great. Now, Ed, we, we talked a lot about contracts. We want to get into some other issues, but before we do, I've got one text question, well, two I want to try and combine, and then I want to give you a chance to you know, wrap up anything we, we missed. Obviously, it's a, a difficult subject to wrap up as quick as we would like, but there's a couple questions here about payments up front or deductibles and collection of deductibles, and, and there's there's two or three of them here, so I'd kind of like to just give you the opportunity, if you would, to kind of fill us in on what the deal is with deductibles and collection of payment up front. Do you have to have a collection of payment up front to have a binding agreement, things of that nature? Okay. Um, what I highly recommend is that um, my clients get as much money, obviously, as they can uh, in advance. The three magic words are cash up front. So take a look at the statutes in the state where you're performing work and find out what your maximums are. And sometimes, you know, they're limited in certain places for residential projects, for example. And everybody needs to keep in mind that residential jobs are the most regulated of all of them. Um, as a general rule, in many states, uh, you can collect as much money as you want uh, in advance on a commercial job. And I highly recommend that um, people do that and that they also structure a progress payment plan for longer projects. A lot of the collections problems that people run into are situations where they work on a long job and they don't get it build in a timely fashion, and they'll work for a month or two months or more, and then they send out this huge invoice, and the customer gets sticker shock. In terms of the uh, deductible, there are some legal risks 
uh, for companies that play games with that sort of thing. Um, you know, some like to say, okay, you can waive your deductible, and you want to be aware of the law in your jurisdiction to see if that sort of thing uh, is going to be permitted or not. Uh, as we've seen, the insurance industry uh, is really starting to zero in on the restoration industry, and um, they are scrutinizing the, the policies and practices that are happening with some of this money, and they're following where it's going, and they've actually taken criminal action, as you know, against some uh, restorers who haven't uh, played it by the book. And you can make plenty of money and have a successful, profitable uh, business without having to play games uh, with checks and deductibles and the money. Ed, could you comment on... Um what is an assignment of benefits? Yes, this is really important, and um, our forms, of course, include an assignment of insurance policy proceeds. And if it's worded properly, um, it has the effect that the policyholder is transferring all legal right and title to the insurance policy proceeds for the work being done by the contractor over to the contractor. So what I argue is that my contractor client has stepped into the shoes of the policyholder. And so it's important to tender the assignment to the insurance company. In other words, we have a form letter where you actually make a formal presentation of the assignment to the insurance company where we say, look, you need to pay us. We are now your insured, and if you don't pay us, if you pay them, you run the risk of having to pay twice. Now, sometimes they don't pay uh, directly, and instead they just make the contractor a joint payee on the check. But that satisfies the problem most of the time and uh, eliminates a lot of the collections issues that occur. One big mistake that I see being made all over the place is people think they have an assignment when they really don't. And they'll call me up and they want to collect uh, some money and, you know, these insureds are taking the insurance policy proceeds and running. They're going to Hawaii or they're paying their mortgage or they're doing whatever. And this is very irritating and it's really hurting a lot of good people who are doing hard work out there. So I say, hey, do you have an assignment of uh, benefits in your contract, they say, yes, I have a direction of pay. I said, no, I'm not talking about a direction of pay. I'm talking about an assignment of benefits. Well, it says in my contract that they're supposed to pay me directly. Well, that's actually a little bit different, and people need to understand the distinction between an assignment of benefits and a direction of pay. A direction of pay is, is a much less formal uh, instruction to the insurance company that says, hey, please send a check to this contractor. It's not a relinquishment and transfer of legal title to those policy proceeds over to the contractor in the way that an assignment is. The direction of pay should be in there also, but it should be in there in combination with an assignment, and it's absolutely vital. And um, so many people are having collections problems um, because they either don't have an assignment or they have an assignment that isn't, uh, isn't well-drafted, and it's something um, you know, that they threw together with something they 
found on the internet when they were practicing law without a license. <laughs> and I, I want to go on to some other issues, but before we do, you were, I, I know we were talking do's and don'ts and then we went into a bunch of other issues. Is there, is there anything you'd like to add to kind of wrap up the contracting side of things? And let me add this. EdCross.com is where you can get a hold of Ed for those of you that are interested. Uh, he's got a nice packet of these contract documents on the website. You can email him there. But before we move on to the updates, Ed, anything you'd like to add to kind of wrap this one up? Yeah. Um, along with the other documents that we've mentioned, um, there's a list uh, on the site there of forms that they need to protect themselves from lawsuits and help their contracts be more enforceable and accelerate their collections. They should have a refusal of recommendations and release of liability form where somebody comes in and disallows them from performing the job in the way that they wish. They should have a refusal confirmation letter to send to a customer who refuses to sign that release that's confirming uh, what happened and tells the story and creates a good paper trail. Uh, that's the form letter that we have. They should have a contents disposal authorization and inventory the contents. And Barb Jackson, of course, has a lot of great uh, material on this, but we have one in our package, too. And there's too many disputes about what was supposed to happen with contents. And in some states, you have a right to assert a lien against con against contents that you're holding in your warehouse when you did something to clean or improve those and the person hasn't paid the bill. There should be a certificate of completion of satisfaction, and that prevents a lot of lawsuits and helps with collections. Uh, there are certain statutory notices that you need, uh, depending on what jurisdiction you're doing work in, like notifying the customer that they have a three-day right of rescission, if that's the law there. Uh, giving them notice of mechanics lien rights, uh, contractor's license law information, and uh, other information like that. Okay. So that's it in a nutshell. And a I know big you, nutshell. You got one, <laughs> well, you got one or two of them up on the site that people can download at no charge, too. The refusal, or I'm sorry, yeah, the refusal of recommendations form was up there, and I believe one other. Right. Okay. Yeah, there's a, uh, a mold notice and disclaimer on there. Since you mentioned mold, um, We've got actually they've got a text question about uh, if there's a disagreement between the homeowner and the remediation contractor, they need to bring in a third party or somebody suggests bringing in a third party industrial hygienist. Who should they be hired by, the homeowner or the homeowner's attorney? I'm not sure why they ask it that way, but maybe you can help me. If a consultant is hired by an attorney, and the consultant comes up with opinions that are adverse to that party's position, then the consultant's work is uh, protected under the attorney work product doctrine and doesn't have to be disclosed later on. That's the advantage of that. So it adds confidentiality to it. And I think it's good uh, for both sides to bring in uh, an environmental consultant. You know, in a perfect world, if everybody's uh, being collegial, they could designate one who's going to be the final arbiter and decision maker, and we say whatever decision this person comes up with is going to be binding. It's, it's hard to pull that off, but uh, with the right 
management of the relationship, sometimes that's possible. While we're talking a little bit of mold, any updates on the latest in mold litigation out there, Ed? Yeah, it's uh, somewhat surprising to me how many mold lawsuits are continuing to be filed. I mean, they're just coming and coming and coming. Um, what is conspicuously absent is verdicts or judgments in these cases. Now, we know that uh, 90% or 95% of most cases never end up getting to court, partly due to the expense of getting there. But I think that uh, mold cases are uh, especially unlikely to ever get to trial, and I'm not seeing the big verdicts come out uh, that we had years ago. Part of that is the uh, the junk science uh, rules and the aggressive approach that we've taken to try to uh, keep some of this uh, frivolous testimony out. But that's not uh, a cause for uh, complacency. I don't want to give people a false sense of security because, like I said at the beginning, lots of these cases are being filed, so there's lots of defense costs that are involved in these. It's a very, very expensive process. Defending a mold case is very labor-intensive, and you need to get experts involved. And so anything that you can do at the front end with communication, documentation, contracts, and follow-through to help outline the responsibilities of the parties and prevent these type of lawsuits from ever being filed in the first place is a huge step in the right direction. I would uh, be remiss if I didn't ask if if there was any update on the status of any of the heat drying litigation that's going on out there. Well, the uh, big thing we're waiting for right now is the um, ruling that's uh, scheduled to happen in April uh, in the Illinois case regarding the claim construction and the uh, validity of the patent, and all of that has been uh, very hotly litigated by a number of very uh, talented lawyers, and so we're hoping that uh, once that ruling comes out in April, um, it's really going to uh, cool off some of those disputes, pardon the pun. Is there anywhere you could suggest people go for more information on that if they wanted it? Yeah, if they look at restorationdefense.org, that's the uh, website for RIDA, Restoration Industry Defense Alliance, and uh, we post updates on there all the time. Again, it's restorationdefense.org. Okay. Let's go to the roundup, Cliff. What do you think? Yes, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how much time you have, Ed, but we got about six minutes left. Let's wrap this up if we can. Okay. All right, let's go once around. We're going to start with Dr. Wiles, see if he has a, a comment. Oh. <laughs> Dr. Dieter. Hello, Dr. Dietrich Wild. Dieter, how are you today? Uh, I still like my good old friend Ludwig van Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, uh, I think that I will tell a friend of mine about the show. He can download it. He's an electrician, and I think just about everything we said with restoration or whatever you want to call it is applicable to many other trades and many other things where people walk into something and say, oh, I have a work authorization over here. That is exactly the same as a service contract. Well, we just learned it is not. Uh, the other thing, and uh, and by the way, I don't have any lawyer jokes, but I think, you, uh, Ed, you underestimated the 10%. <laughs> I think it's more like 90%. Maybe you looked at it the other way. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I work with, unfortunately, and sometimes fortunately, with insurance company, mainly when I'm waiting for my paycheck. And no, insurance companies, are notoriously slow in paying, and there's a very good reason for it. I learned that many years ago. Literally, all the money that you pay in for an insurance, on your house, on your car, and so on, and everybody has really gone through that, the money that you paid in, you almost are going to get back. Comma. However, the insurance company had that money for 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years. Right now, even they don't make a heck of a lot of interest on it, like I do. Uh, but um, they just hang on to it. I, I don't know whether they assume, well, if we don't pay him right away, maybe you will forget about it altogether. <laughs> I hope that's not their philosophy. Uh, what else do I have here? Yeah, like I said, I, I will give this one to a friend of mine, and there are a lot of people... Yeah, wherever we say mold remediation, you can say brickwork or electrician or framing or plumbing work or something like that. I think it all goes into the same direction, that there are situations where you can run into trouble, and if you're not protected, well, you pay, or you are, I don't want to say the word here, but... You are up uh, uh, something. <laughs> up the creek without a paddle, huh? Up the creek. Right. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, Ed. another thing, yeah. Um, uh, congratulations to Andy. Andy <laughs> is a good friend of mine, and I do not give him the answers. I didn't know the answer. I know. Uh, <laughs> he worked he hard for that. He, he worked hard for that. that one our champion over here. Oh, yeah. That one wasn't easy to find, Dieter. Well, Dieter brings up a good point, Ed, um, and I want to kind of direct that to another segment of our audience and those are people who do indoor environmental quality consulting uh, sometimes they're considered IH. Exactly. exactly right well Dieter brings up a great point Ed, any anything you'd like to add for those of us that do that type of work with respect to the contract document issue yes it's very important that environmental consultants have good quality agreements uh, most of the ones that I've seen leave a lot of areas vulnerable, a lot of areas open, um, especially for liability. Environmental consultant is in a very treacherous position for a bunch of different reasons, uh, not least of which is the fact that the consultant is there but isn't doing the work. So the consultant can see problems, maybe can see the mold or see that, you know, dehumidifiers in a wrong place or whatever, but it's not really in the consultant's scope of work to change any of that. 
And so the consultant is kind of in a helpless position, especially if there isn't good cooperation from all of the different parties involved. And because of that, uh, when I write agreements for these environmental consultants, we have a lot of limits of liability in there. And, you know, um, these, these consultants give a lot of great recommendations, and uh, sometimes they're followed and sometimes they're not, and their agreements uh, need to clearly state that if the building owner is hiring some contractor to do some work, the building owner is going to be responsible um, to indemnify the industrial hygienist or environmental consultant for any errors made by that contractor because the, the consultants a lot of times can't control the contractors. They can lead the horses to the water, but it, it may end at that point. And so... Um, we have uh, a number of special provisions that we write for the indoor environmental professionals who have quite a bit of liability exposure. Okay. I think that's, that's very helpful. Cliff? I really have, I have two questions, and I think they're both important. So, you know, as co-host, I can ask. <laughs> uh, I guess the first one is, um, are, are you an advocate or do you have concerns about restoration firms who have contracts for water damage restoration work um, that do or do not have prices in them? Um, do you like to see the prices per day for each piece of rental equipment? Do you like to see that specified on a form, or you, you don't think you need to do that? No, like I mentioned earlier, my preference is for a fixed price lump sum contract. I recognize that creates some challenges for emergency service work. Um, but I have a number of clients who do this quite successfully, and here's how they do it. They tell the homeowner, look, I want to put a number on this to give you a general ballpark idea as to what the cost is going to be so we don't have any misunderstandings later. That way, if the customer says, oh, my gosh, you know, I, I never knew it was going to cost this much, and if I had, I wouldn't have hired this particular contractor. So then you say, I don't know if this is going to be the actual price. Water damage is a progressive condition. So I'm going to come back on day two or day three of this work. We're going to do a more detailed inspection, monitor the progress of the drawing, and then we're going to revisit the price if it's necessary to alter it modify it by way of a change order. It might go down, it might go up, but based on my experience of doing hundreds of these projects, I think the price is approximately going to be this much, but you and I are going to agree uh, that we're going to revisit this later. And so you're, let's say, two days into the job. You say, okay, Mrs. Jones, the price so far for this work is $5,000. Well, that's an important turning point in the relationship. You, you watch Mrs. Jones's facial expressions. If she's freaking out, this is a red flag, and maybe you don't want to continue expending resources and equipment for this particular job. If she's okay with it, you're, you're kind of monitoring the patient as you go along like a doctor would with a patient in intensive care. These people are under a lot of stress and anxiety, and they don't understand how restoration works. And then you say, okay, I think we're going to need uh, $2,500 more to finish this particular project. I've got a change order for you here. And if she doesn't want the work done, walk from the job. 
course, you're going to take any reasonable steps to protect the environment and, and keep, from, keep it from getting worse. But you don't need to continue pouring more and more resources into a project for a customer who isn't going to pay. And so it's about ongoing communications and find the right person on your staff who has the people skills to manage those dynamics and create a good bond with the customer. My, my final question really deals with mortgage companies. And, you know, it's not unusual where, particularly in today's market, where homeowners may be underwater on their house. You know, they are, they're behind in their mortgage payments. I guess, number one, is there a way that the contractor can find out whether or not the homeowner is in arrears? And number two, um, when they put the mortgage company's name on that check, is the mortgage mortgage company entitled to the contractor's fees and his money for service work? <clears throat> Absolutely not. I'll answer uh, your second question first. Uh, there is case law on this, and what the courts have said is that uh, even though the uh, mortgage company may have a contract that says that uh, any insurance loss proceeds should be applied to an arrearage on the mortgage. If some contractor comes in and saves the property and basically improves the collateral of the bank, then the contractor is entitled to that money. And the mortgage companies fight this really hard and say, we have contract rights under our uh, loan documents that say we get this money. And what the courts have done with this in, in multiple states is actually pretty extraordinary. What they've said is contract rights are important, but in some instances that are, there are other rights that are even more important than contract rights, and that's the right of equity and fairness. And to allow a mortgage company or bank to be able to receive the benefits of the work and the improvement of their collateral from the contractor and to get the cash also would be an unjust enrichment to the bank and unjust enrichment is an important legal doctrine and if it's presented properly the courts won't allow that Thank so um, what should happen is like I mentioned before the uh, the um, agreement should be written up with an assignment to make sure that the restoration company gets named as a payee on the check and gets in there. And then we need to stay on top of these mortgage companies and, uh, and put pressure on them. And what a contractor can do is actually take the mortgage company to court when they're holding the funds and pursue uh, what's called um, claim and delivery under this old legal doctrine called replevin, where the court will actually order somebody who's holding money or property to hand it over to somebody else who's rightfully entitled to that money. And we've been able to get lots of mortgage companies to, uh, to hand over that money, and I wrote an article in Cleaning and Restoration magazine uh, in the spring of last year that came out with some steps on this. If there's a mechanics lien on the property and you have a customer certificate of completion and, uh, and satisfaction that's been signed, those are very, very helpful to the process. And if you help facilitate an inspection by the mortgage company 
and put enough pressure on them, they'll release the money. And I, I kind of goofed up here and didn't give Val a chance, so I, I have to give her the last question, which is a question for you to add any thoughts. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, Ed, would you like to add anything today? Yeah, um, there are a couple of things that um, are coming up which I think are potentially uh, important changes uh, in the industry. Um, one thing we want to keep aware of is uh, other industries stepping in to try to take a piece of the restoration market. And I talked to somebody recently who went to a training facility and uh, reviewed the roster of people who were taking a WRT course, and they were almost all plumbers. And the, the drying industry needs to be aware that the plumbing industry is starting to get into this line of work. And, you know, it dawns on them that something's going on when they receive 14 phone calls a day from different drying companies stepping in and saying, hey, could you please refer us your drying work? So they just start a new company name, and they have a, a new truck and a different set of uniforms, um, but it's the same company, and they come out and they can take that business. There's been some discussion on uh, LinkedIn about um, insurance companies uh, actually getting into the restoration game as well. That's uh, kind of preliminary at this point, uh, but that's something that we need to be aware of. And last but not least, uh, if people look at the restoration law group on LinkedIn, there's a very interesting discussion on there about Xactimate pricing and whether or not it's a fair representation of industry standard market prices for the work and uh, whether or not Xactimate has done proper surveys to determine what the market prices actually are. And I would encourage everybody to look at the Restoration Law Group on LinkedIn. Ed, thank you. This has been uh, a wonderful interview. We had a, a nice group of live listeners with us today. It's always great to have you back and uh, you know, have you with us, and, and we look forward to having you back down the road. And just don't embarrass me with any more uh, improperly bootlegged uh, drum recording. Okay, <laughs> uh, we'll try not to. We'll we'll do that. We'll do that. Although, oh no, here we go. Oh wow, he's killing me. Uh, thank you. Ed. Oh my god, we really appreciate. I didn't even you. say that was being recorded. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you go to a party, you sit down, you have no idea who's going to be hiding there trying to blackmail you. <laughs> they got you good at. All right. Well, this Thank is uh, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to the restoration attorney Ed Cross for joining us this week. Great show. I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man. Uh, another great job, of course. Roxy V, Val Bender at the controls. No Good glitches show, today. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well done. <laughs> of course, Dr. Dietrich Wow, our technical director. But most importantly, all the great folks out there joining us. Excellent questions today. Please come back next week. We've got Peter Cross on next week. We're going to talk a little more about insurance adjusting and uh, some issues with insurance for the restoration. We've been trying to focus more on the restoration side these past couple weeks. And we'll be back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. Sometimes you fall down, can't get back up. Or hiding behind skin and stoops of 
Another IAQ Radio production. 